The New Testament reading today is from Mark chapter 13, verse 32 through 36. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do ask that by your word we would be changed and transformed. We know that your ways are far beyond us, and we also know that there are some scriptures and some passages that are even harder than others to understand. And so we need an extra helping of your spirit this morning. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right, so we just heard the end of Mark chapter 13 read, um, but we are going to be walking through the entire chapter this morning. Um, it's a lot. I'll acknowledge that. I'll admit that. It's a lot. Uh, and we're not going to be able to give it all the academic and biblical, theological, and scholarly justice that it deserves. It's confusing. Now, when I say it's confusing, I don't mean that reading it is hard, but as you're reading it, uh, you probably will feel more like the disciples than in any other story in this text, in that your response to Jesus is, huh? Right? And, and there's disagreement on what to do with this text. If you grew up in a context like I did, <clears throat> uh, we, we learned very clearly what, what was going to happen in the end times. We were told with, uh, with timelines, and uh, we even had a whole series of fiction books that, that helped us to remember the exact order that things would happen in and how long this period was and how long that period was. If you grew up in that, then you know like uh, there's a pre-tribulational rapture and, and this, that, and the third and, and uh, <clears throat> premillennialism. And then I went to college uh, and I found myself rolling with another camp. And they were like, that thousand-year reign of Jesus, the millennium, like they said, uh, it's... it's it's figurative, and it's already happening. It's happened. It started. It's here already, but not yet, a phrase that we use a lot. And, um, and beyond just saying that, uh, they also kind of poked fun at, at the, the Lahayites and, um, and Kirk Cameron and uh, 
the things that I grew up in, and there was this like, this is what it is, ha <laughs> ha, zing. Um, and at the same time, the professors that I was sitting under in undergrad were saying, well, actually, uh, the millennium isn't just like we get to complete that work and, and Christ will come back when we've established his kingdom and its fullness. And then we would fight. We'd be like, you can't establish God's kingdom without Jesus being here already. And they're like, that's just an excuse to not help people. And and all of these things that seem ridiculous. Meanwhile, over here, my old friends were like, yeah, but none of you are reading the Bible, right? Because you would have this timeline. Um, and therefore, you don't believe any of it. I'm worried about your salvation. And then we'd be both in like, <laughs> right, you get the point. One of the things that we want to be as a church is a place where people from differing backgrounds in the faith can come together under a single banner, Jesus, his gospel. The fact that Christ came, Christ died, Christ was raised, that Christ sent his spirit, that those of us who believe those things as basic truth are followers of Jesus and that he calls us to live certain lives and through his apostle Paul, he calls us to desperately avoid silly arguments, silly quarrels about timelines and genealogies and, and things we can't know. And yet, the Bible seems so full of prophecy. And so what I want you to know is that as we walk through this text, I'm not going to pretend like I'm coming at this unbiased. I'm not going to be like, well, this is just what the text says. Like we all walk into the text with an idea of how to read it. And then it shapes how we read it. And sometimes, sometimes it confounds our understandings. And sometimes the way we read it actually confirms our biases, right? But we have to handle this text. So I want you to hear that. So there are some things that I'm going to say that depending on how you stand on this, you may say, yeah, I don't think that's it. And I'm cool with that. But there are some things that we're going to come from here, that are go we're going to pull out from here, um, that the urgency is high, that you hear and receive. And, and I think the key to this text is in what Jesus commanded at the very end and what we talked to the children about this morning is that we are called to be ready. Now, with school, the stakes are somewhat high at being ready. If you don't eat breakfast, you're going to be hungry in school, especially if you get there late and miss the breakfast that the school serves. You're going to be hungry through lunch. It's hard to concentrate. You may miss when you're learning. Uh, but when you're in kindergarten or third grade, uh, even sixth or seventh grade, like those little things may not have huge long-term consequences. But as we get older, the weight of our mistakes, the weight of our decisions or indecision bears much heavier on our lives. We know that. We know that. The, the legal system sets it out for us. That's why who's a minor and who gets charged as a minor is so important and why there are fights even over it now when we see a disparity in who gets charged as a minor versus an adult. Because when you're a minor, there are consequences, but the length that they stick to you, the length and the, the amount of time that it affects your life 
is different than when you're an adult and you hit that imaginary line and now you're an adult and we charge you and the, the, it sticks forever. Right? It's the same with us. If we're not prepared to go to work and if we're not diligent about being prepared to go to work, we get to work late. You get to work late enough. The consequence isn't merely that you missed homeroom. It's that you no longer have a work or a job to be late to. Or if you don't prepare for that briefing, if you don't prepare for that meeting or that presentation or that sermon, right? You find yourself unable to do the job that you were called to do and you look bad, but also it affects your job. It affects your work. If we are not prepared, the consequences are high. If we're late, the consequences are high sometimes. They're, they're big. You miss a flight. You miss a job interview. You lose a job opportunity. So for us, this idea of preparing ourselves, being ready, setting that alarm clock, it is the reality that we live in day after day. That's why as adults, when we get that one chance where we don't have to set the alarm clock, we're like, yes. And then our bodies wake us up anyway. And we're like, curse you. <laughs> right? We have to be prepared. And so the question that I would ask is, well, what is Jesus telling us to be prepared for? And that's what we're unpacking in the first part, in the rest of chapter 13. So listen to this. As he was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, look, what massive stones, what impressive buildings. Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another. All will be thrown down. Dang, Jesus. Like, really? Right? We've been there. You, you, how many of you have been to a place with architecture that's just so phenomenal? Like, we live in a city where there are places where there's just amazing architecture. I remember the first time. I, I grew up in this area. And I remember the first time I was driving and saw the, uh, the basilica that I didn't know existed. And I was like, whoa, that's like something out of Spain or like some other place, not here. And the architecture, look at it. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. Right When you walk around the mall and you look at how the, the Greco sort of Roman style architecture, it's beautiful. Or if you leave the country, right? Like I love going to like, like when you go to Mexico or when you go into Latin and South America and you see kind of the mix of the Spanish and the native architecture. And like that is beautiful. Or if you've been to Prague before, it's one of the most beautiful cities in the world. And you look at the architecture and you're walking with friends. And, and <clears throat> I remember being in Russia, for example, in Moscow, and I saw St. Basil's Cathedral, right? Beautiful. Like, you, you know what I'm talking about. It looks like candy on top of a building that's been covered in candy. It's beautiful. Um, <laughs> and I remember saying, like, oh, I'm finally seeing it. We were with a team of people. We were on a mission trip. And it's like, there it is, St. Basil's Cathedral. It's so beautiful. And the guy next to me was like, you know, the architect that built that had his eyes gouged out so that he couldn't make anything as beautiful again. It's like, no, I didn't know that. And I just wanted to look at the gumdrop <laughs> building, right? Like, <laughs> Jesus is doing that here. They're looking around at this architecture, at this temple, at, at this city, and they're country boys. 
this is the best part of the gospel to me is how like how much it 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 humanizes the disciples in Jesus they're from Galilee right Galilee is like Aldi Virginia right to DC like these aren't city slickers these aren't city boys these are country boys and they're walking through and they're in Jerusalem and it's like and you can imagine them being like that kid from Kansas who comes out of of the Lincoln Tunnel for the first time and sees New York, right? And you can always tell people who are at New York for the first time because they're walking like this, right? Like, and, and they're like that. And, and in this moment of just marveling, Jesus says, actually, it's all going to come down. And so they keep walking and, and they sit and they go to get to the Mount of Olives across from the temple and they sit and it says that Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things happen, and what will be the signs when all these things are about to be accomplished? They know Jesus enough to ask the right questions now. And Jesus told them, watch out. There it is the first time. Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. These things must take place, but it is not yet the end. And I want you to hear this, because verse 8 is the key to understanding this whole chapter. Nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. These are the beginnings of birth He continues, but you, be on your guard. Be ready. Be watchful. Look out. They will hand you over to local courts, and you will be flogged in the synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings because of me as a witness to them, and it is necessary that the gospel be preached to all nations. So they will arrest you and hand you over. Don't worry beforehand what you will say, but whatever... uh, But say whatever is given to you at the time, for it isn't you speaking, but the Holy Spirit... Brother will betray brother to death and father his children. Children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by everyone, but the one, because of my name, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Jesus is beginning to tell his disciples about the suffering and the tribulation and the persecution that is to come. And like I said, the center of this whole text. The the key thing that he says is that these are just the beginning of the birth pains, the birth pangs, the pains of labor. And what's interesting, uh, what's interesting is that if you recall last week when Joey was talking, He mentioned that the systems and the structures of the world that they lived in, the way things were, was not the way it was going to be always, and that there was a new thing coming. And I think that's so critical for us understanding birth and its pains. Now, in some ways, uh, we should have a woman up here right now talking about this, because I haven't experienced it. I've seen it from the outside, right? Like, I've looked on it uh, multiple times. Right, but I haven't experienced the birth pains. 
right? But, but I do know, while it's pain from the beginning, the intensity of the pain increases as you get closer and closer to the culmination, to the birth, to the thing you've been waiting for. And Jesus is saying, what's happening is like this. All this destruction, all these false prophets, all this persecution, all of these things that I am talking about, they're going to intensify and increase in pain. You're going to suffer, and you're going to have suffering upon suffering. But just like a mother endures the pains of birth in so much as she can, that the child might come, you are to endure this pain. So let's stop for a moment and think about that. Think about the idea of being in labor, of something being born. There's probably at least three feelings going on. Feeling number one, we've talked about it, pain. Ouch, sorry. Right? Pain. Pain and lots of it. Feeling number two, dread. Right? The fear of more pain and the fear of the unknown and what's to come. Feeling number three, hope, excitement, anticipation. Because while we don't know what happens next in our life, we know that at the end of labor, should all the things go right, right, we're not going to end up with anything but a, a baby. We're going to get a baby, right? Like sometimes you get surprised and it turns out you got two babies, but either way, humanoid, human, in fact, baby, right? That is yours, that shares your DNA, that looks like you and your spouse, that, that, <clears throat> that you will get to bring into this world and, and, and bring up in this world, and it's good. And this is what Jesus is talking about, and this is necessary to endure suffering. God is working something out in this world. He is doing something. Uh, what is right now is not what is to come. That's what Jesus is saying. Something better is being birthed. Paul understood that. Paul said in Romans 8 that the whole earth, the whole of creation, moans and groans with the pain of waiting for the sons and daughters of God to be revealed. It's, where, it's, it's, it's as it's in childbirth. It's as if it's in childbirth, in labor right now. And Jesus is saying something new is being birthed. And so in order to understand that, let's talk about Herod's temple. Let's talk about what they've just come out of. Let's talk about those country boys who've walked out of Herod's temple again and are looking around the city of Jerusalem. Right? So you've got to understand some things historically. <clears throat> We, we find ourselves in Second Temple Judaism. So the temple that Solomon and David built, the one whose beauty and architecture has never been rivaled, is gone. It's been destroyed, sacked. Babylonians, Assyrians, gone. In fact, the whole nation was exiled, or much of the nation was exiled. They found themselves in lands that weren't their own. And many of them, 
were able to come back later eventually. And they were able to come back to Jerusalem and to Israel and begin to rebuild this way of life. And then they're occupied by Rome. And Rome's an interesting state, right? Because it occupies you. It's an empire. It does that. But it allows you to keep some of your customs in so much as you keep those customs underneath your allegiance to Rome. And so there's this temple that's built. It's the second temple. In Jesus' time, it's not yet completed. And yet, even incomplete, what Josephus the historian and what many others record is that it was considered widely the most beautiful piece of architecture in the known world, the second temple. And this city, Jerusalem, is full of beautiful and, and, and ornate and, and wonderful architecture, whether it's, it's uh, the ancient walls that have been rebuilt or whether it's just the buildings that you find in the city, the architecture is beautiful. And for the people of Israel, it represents something very important. In the second temple, Judaism, it represents this reestablishment of ourselves as a people in a place with a God. It represents religion. The temple is where you worship. It represents commerce and trade. Jesus wasn't too keen on that, remember? But it did. It was a place where trading happened. It's a place where uh, economics happened. It represented a place of uh, sovereignty and justice, right? The, the leaders and the religious rulers in Israel at the time were also the people who you would go to to settle affairs and debates and this, that, and the other, right? Like Jerusalem for the people of Israel and the temple in specific was the center, it was the hub of the cultural uniqueness, the cultural identity of these people. It represents everything. For them, it means that the things are going right. That this course that we had been on for so long is being corrected. That, if you want to speak uh, a little bit anachronistically and take a phrase from MLK and, and, and bring it back there, that, that the arc of history is finally starting to bend back towards us. God's doing it. This is who we are. It represents the ultimate in reality. And so when Jesus says that these buildings will, will be raised to the ground, that not one stone will be left on another, this isn't simply a shame because of the architecture that's going to be lost. And we can understand this, right? I don't talk about like civics in this way that much. But if you were if you're older than a certain age, like September 11th is indelibly stamped on your minds, your hearts, and even if you're under a certain age, everything about the way we govern Everything about our foreign policy, everything about our national security policy was forever shaped by September 11th, right? Why? Because it wasn't just that two of the tallest buildings, the two tallest in the world or whatever, were knocked down. It wasn't because the skyline of New York changed. It was because those buildings in that moment 
represented a people. And they represented an idea. And they represented power. And they represented prosperity. And they represented all the things that America believed America to be. And so when those buildings fell, it was not about brick and mortar and steel and stone. It was about a people. The same thing is happening here. When Jesus says these things will fall, and they do, flash forward to 70 AD. Jerusalem is once again sacked. The temple is finally destroyed. No stone left on another stone. It's not just that a beautiful building has been destroyed. It's that the backs of a people have been broken. And this is what Jesus is saying is coming. Everything that we understand about how the world is and should be is going to be destroyed. But then he keeps going. Like, if that were it, we'd be good because we could say, yeah, Jesus talked about that, and then in AD 70, it happened, right? Jesus got it, right? There it is. But he keeps going, and then this is where we get confused, right? He says in verse 14 now, when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be. I love this parenthetical from Mark. Let the reader understand. Okay. (laughs) Then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. A man on a housetop must not come down or go in to get anything out of his house. A man in the field must not go back to get his coat. Woe to pregnant women and nursing mothers in those days. Pray it doesn't happen in the winter. This will be days of tribulation, uh, the kind that, that hasn't been seen from the beginning of creation and won't be again. If the Lord doesn't cut these days short, no one would survive. But he cut the days short for the sake of the elect, those whom he has chosen. People will say, see, here is the Messiah. Don't believe them. False messiahs, false prophets will arise and will perform signs and wonders and and will try and lead astray even the elect. And you must watch. There it is again. Be prepared. Be vigilant. I have told you everything in advance. And so now Jesus starts getting into what is really apocalyptic and prophetic language. Here's how we know it. First of all, he uses the phrase abomination of desolation. So if you're like, if you're scripture savvy, right? And so if you haven't heard that phrase and you're like, I, well, you can read Daniel. But there's a reason why we study the Old Testament is because it keeps popping up in the New Testament for some reason as if it was their scripture, Right? which it was. And so we study the Old Testament. And this term, abomination of desolation, comes up in Daniel twice, in Daniel 11.31 and in Daniel 12.11. And in both cases, the abomination of desolation is standing over the, the ruins of the temple, is destroyed the temple. This is a phrase that they've heard. It's a pop apocalyptic language. And so for us, we begin to say, okay, signs and shadows, how do we interpret what this means? And so we want to, first of all, break this word down, abomination, right? Like we know what that means. And that word gets used a lot in in the Old Testament, especially. And so there will be actions that are an abomination to the Lord. There are things that are detestable, right? And so a lot of times we think, well, maybe abomination is like uh, certain carnal sins, But more often than not, in the Old Testament, abomination 
uh, as, a, as it relates to the sins of the people has to do with idolatry, has to do with setting up and establishing as God that which is not God, setting up and establishing as supreme and determinative that which is not God. And it leads unto desolation. It lays things to waste. And Jesus says, you're going to see the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place where it should not. When you see that, run to the hills. And so now, here's where we get into some interpretive like discourse, and I'm going to be quick. For many, and growing up this was me, the abomination of desolation was somehow... Uh, conflated with the Antichrist. And this action was talking about the destruction of the world and, um, you know, two men standing on a hill. One is gone, the other left standing still. I wish we'd all been ready, right? Um, you, you know how it goes, right? And so this is a global catastrophic event. The abomination of desolation is and destruction. But I want you to hear how Jesus talks about that. I just want to give you like a little interpretive clue as to why I'm going to say what I'm about to say. This is not talking about a future global event, but rather it's talking about for them a future event that happens in 70 AD, right? Um, because he says, flee to the hills. Now here's what's interesting about the hills. They're on the globe. Follow me. So if it's a global catastrophic event, fleeing to the hills will not help. Right? So for him, he's saying, get out of the city and get to the country. Right? We know this is a common practice and a common tactic. It happened in London before the bombing in World War II, which leads, sets up to my favorite, uh, the Chronicles of Narnia. Right? Like, they all go out on the train. Right? We know. Leave the densely populated, because that's where war goes. Right? The abomination of desolation comes. And so this is a localized event. Here's another reason why. It says, you will hear about wars and rumors of wars. Now, you've got to understand how war worked back then. Not today, back then. Today we have social media, so we know every skirmish that breaks out. We know it as it's happening. Like, we see it in real time. Somebody just ran into Caracas, and now it's broke out. And then we get, like, pictures and videos from there, right, all the time. Um, there... They didn't have the internet, social media. They didn't have television or radio. They had people on foot and horses, camelback, and however long that took. And so they would get back, they would hear about wars sometimes after they were done. Right? But often long after they had started. And they would hear rumors of war. I hear that Rome, Rome's doing it again. This time, you know, out east. You know, they'd hear rumors of war. And they would hear about wars. And Jesus is saying something that is very centralized to them. You're going to hear about this. It's going to intensify. Rome is starting to gain power. Rome's also starting to lose power and grasp even harder for it. Now, here's why, <clears throat> we'll get to why that's important in a little bit. But he says, it's coming to you, and when that destruction comes, don't hang around. Be ready. And then he begin. he keeps talking about <clears throat> 
false prophets and false messiahs. What's interesting is that Josephus actually records this in his history, uh, and he says that right around between 30 and 70 A.D., 50 really and 70 A.D., there is this uptick in Messiah figures in Jerusalem and in the area and people following them. Like these actual figures, right? And so we want to talk about like false teachers in the church. Maybe it's talking about that. And, and you know what? Be on guard against false teachers in the church. But let's look at what Jesus is saying. Right? These things are happening. He says, you're going to see all of these things and the time will be coming. Okay? So finally then, why? Right? So we've got these things. The temple, Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. There's uh, false prophets that are going to emerge. There's tribulation and suffering. Some of you are going to go before kings and courts and trials. It says, <clears throat> uh, so let's keep going and see why. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not shed its light. The stars will be falling from the sky and the powers in heaven will be shaken. Right? So uh, if you're like, I used to have nightmares about the sun blotting out because that's how I understood what was going to happen. Right? It's like, oh, the sun is getting dark. This is it. <laughs> you know, like, I'm ready. Well, just go. Right? You know, and. I want you to think about this language, especially in this region. The Roman gods controlled what? The sun, the moon, and the stars. And the Roman powers understood themselves to be what? Gods, heavenly powers. Israel understood themselves to be God's people. Because God told them they were, right? Like, I'm not, I'm not equating them, because one is a false understanding, one is an understandable and accurate understanding according to the revelation of God, right? But what Jesus is saying here is that, and as you can imagine, think about those days after September 11th. What's happening? Right? Like, people were actively confused. People were flocking into churches the Sunday after because they were like, we don't know what's going on. Everything usually happens out here. Now it's here. Are we safe? Are we this powerful as we thought? Are we, are we, what's going on? And then at a national level, they're scrambling. How did this happen? Who did it? Where are they? How do we find them? How do we protect ourselves? There is a darkness and a scrambling that occurs when an empire or a people or a place falls. And they're experiencing it. And Jesus says that. All of this is going to happen. The earthly powers, the created powers, they will fall. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. He will send out the angels, his messengers, and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. And all of a sudden now, we see this. Something must be born. And for something to be born... Actually, something has to die a little. In this case, completely. And Jesus is saying, the powers that are are not the powers that always will be. They will pass away. And me and my church and my kingdom will come and will be established in the four corners of the earth 
the four winds. You'll see heaven and earth pass away, a new heaven and earth come. I am establishing my people, right? That's a broad sense, but in this very narrow sense, he says, this tribulation is going to come to you, and then you are going to go to the ends of the earth. This destruction, this persecution, right? Have you heard the blood of the martyrs, the seed of the church? Well, here's why in the first century. Because the church was happily localized in a very specific region of the world. And the persecution drives them out to the corners of the earth. It causes the church to be the church all around the world. Jesus is saying, suffering will drive the mission of the church. This is the means by which the church and this new way of being and living will be propagated. You will sprout leaves like the fig tree, and, and you will go, and this generation, listen, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things take place. Right? Jesus, Jesus is saying something clear here. It's for you guys, N not us, not you guys, but you who I'm talking to. And then he finishes it by saying, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words are forever. In other words, let it be so. I know that's a lot. I know that's a lot. And I know that you're probably asking, so then what does this have to do with us? He said, these things are just the beginning of the birth pains. He doesn't give a timeline for how long they last. He doesn't give a timeline for when the birth will be finished. This isn't, you come in at 10, you get a baby at 11, you leave at 3.30, Right? This is, this is buckle up. And here we are. And there's still the pains of labor. God's kingdom is here already, but not yet in its fullness. We have work to do. And as such, we must be alert. And we must be on guard. We must be, as Jesus tells us, so that we don't get caught with our pants down so that we don't get caught asleep, <clears throat> so that we don't get caught unawares and unprepared. And I want to finish with this. This idea of being ready, of being alert, of being awake, like the original stay woke, right? <laughs> it involves three things that we see clearly from this text. Number one, being ready means being ready to suffer. Anyone who tells you life will only get easier as you follow the Lord is selling you something. You will suffer. Whether that suffering is death to self or whether that suffering is imprisonment at the hands of a tyrannical and anti-Christian government, there is suffering. The second thing is be ready to go. The Lord calls us in an instant. And I don't just mean home. I mean to another place, another city, to our work, to our neighborhood. Be ready to go. 
And as you go, make disciples. Be ready to serve, right? As you go, serve. As you go, make disciples. As you go, proclaim the truth. Be ready. And finally, be ready for the Son. Christ is coming in the fullness of his kingdom. Be ready.